1 Thessalonians chapter 2. When we get there, I'm going to read down through this section again. I didn't see how long it took Peg and I to read through this the other night, but not very long, did it? So, again, an encouragement to you. Uh, if you're interested in working on this study, just pick up your Bible and see if you can just read through the whole book in one setting. It doesn't take that long. If we read through Ephesians. That took us, I think, my 20. Oh, okay, 25. I was going to say 20. So. No, because I'm a pokey reader. Anyway, verse 1. 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 1. For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain, but after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. For exhortation does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. For we never came with flattering speech, as you know, or with a pretext for greed, God is witness, nor do we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, even though as apostles of Christ we might have asserted our authority. But we proved to be gentle among you, as nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. Having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but our very lives, because you had become very dear to us. For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. And you are witnesses. And so is God, how devoutly, uprightly, and blamelessly we behaved toward you believers, just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father with his own children, so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. And that's kind of where I'd like to be able to get down to tonight. Um, last week, as Paul was uh, laying the groundwork for this, and I want you to jump ahead because and I, I may have mentioned this, I don't know if I have, but if you turn over to chapter 3 for just a moment, Paul is going to um, tell these uh, the believers that he, was, he wanted to be left alone in Athens so that he could send somebody back to Thessalonica uh, to check on the believers. And the reason he wanted to check on the believers, uh, the reason he wanted to send back and do this was because, and I'm doing this off the cuff here, so I'm looking for my verse. Um, uh, no, it's the one where he said he was concerned that they might have that the tempter might have tempted them. I'm just missing oh. it here. Five. Oh, five. Yeah, thank five. you. Therefore, I also no longer was able to bear it, and I sent to you to know your faith, lest somehow the one that tempts, the one that is tempting, should have tempted you, and our labor should have come to be in vain or emptied of its content. Uh, not interestingly enough, emptied of result. It's emptied of, of the content, which to me is very interesting. We're going to deal with this in more detail when we get there, but I think the reason he uses this word vain for content is um, sometimes people can still produce the, out, the kind of the desired outcome you want, but not do it the way you want it done, not with the right attitude. I mean, all of us know what that's like either as kids or having kids, of doing a job or assigning them a job, and they get it done. And 
Are you glad they got it done? Yes. But would you? But if, but if they get it done and the whole time they're grumbling, oh, they're acting like you know you have just you know given them forty lashes or something, you know, or assigned them to to shoulder the weight of the earth. Uh, you want them to have a good attitude when you assign them a task. And God has designed us to live the Christian life in a certain way. And so when he talks about our labor should have come to be in vain, uh, Paul's not concerned just about how they live in the end. He's not just concerned about the outcome in their behavior. He is equally concerned about how they do it, how they accomplish that. But it has to do with this idea of the tempter. And if you go back to chapter 2, one of the reasons that Paul is building this, reminding them, I shouldn't say building this case, but maybe he is building a case, but reminding them of what God did in their lives when they were there and how Paul and these other men acted when they were ministering to them is I think because one of the things Paul's maybe concerned about with regard to the temptation is if you've got somebody that has shared something with you and you go, oh, that was really good stuff. I really, really like that. And then all of a sudden, something really bad happens to that person just shortly after. They get run out of town, in Paul's case. You might be tempted. Satan might use that to go, well, you know, if that had really been legitimate, would that have happened to him? Would that bad thing have happened? Because isn't that kind of human mentality? Bad things generally happen to people that aren't bad. That's the whole issue in the book of Job that his friends are trying to argue for. Job, this obviously happened to you because you were bad in some way. And they even make suggestions in which ways they thought maybe he was bad. And Paul is, and Paul, as he's looking, going through this, he's trying to convince or trying to remind them, you know, everything we did when we were with you, it was in your interest. We were caring about you. We were interested in you. We wanted the best for you. This is what we were doing. And we behaved in a manner that was not selfish, didn't put ourselves first in any way, uh, despite maybe what might be suggested by Satan. And so, as we saw last week, um, where Paul uh, said back in verse 7, when we had the ability to be heavy as apostles of Christ, we were caused to become babes. No, cause to become gentle, remember? My Leonard Leonard does have the word babes, but we took time to go over that. That should be the word gentle in your midst. And he goes on and there, he says, so we, we were affectionately desirous to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but even our very lives. And in this way, then you were caused to become beloved ones. So that brings us then to verse 9. He says, so you, for you remember, brothers, our labor, and our hardship. And he uses two words for work. The first word, kapas, is a word meaning to labor so that you exhaust yourself. But the second word, um, makthan here, is something that is just tedious and weary, wearisome and just wants to just lay you flat out. And it, it's a term that really has a, a real strong connotation. And so Paul says both those words. doesn't just use the kapas. I mean, neither one of these words imply just work. Both of them are referring to work that's hard. It's hard work and really hard work. Exhausting work and lay out on the ground exhausting work, we might say. And he says, we did this working night and day. 
so that we should not be a burden. The same word that Paul used back in verse 7 when he says we could have been a burden, could have been weighty. How do some of your translations have that in verse 7? Burdensome? Burden. Burden, okay. Because it seemed like seemed like we had some translations that didn't represent that last time. Yeah. And maybe I'm... Maybe I'm back in verse seven, two seven. Oh, so yours is at the so yours is in verse six, and what do you have in verse six? Demand. Okay, so we could. Okay, I'm looking at verse seven, but it's not verse seven in some of your Bibles. For when we were able to be burdensome as apostles of Christ. Okay, and so that's in verse 6. Okay. Right. Yes. And that word asserted our authority or made demands, that's this word bare, which means a weight. And that's the same word that Paul is using in verse 9. Well, it's the base of the word. Down there, it's a verb in verse 9. It's a noun in verse 7 or verse 6, depending on if you guys have your Bibles. But it's a verb in verse 9, and it's a stronger verb. It's not just to be a burden, but it's epibareo. So in other words, it's to really be uh, really be a burden on top of you. And so he says, so as not to do that to any one of you, we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. In other words, he says, we work so that we could proclaim it, we might put it, free of charge, not to charge a thing from you people. These were brand new believers. Paul doesn't at any time want with these brand new believers to think, for them to think that they owe him something or that he was in any way doing this for money, which again, we saw that back up in the context uh, a couple weeks ago where he says we didn't do it as like with a cloak of greediness, like we act sincere, like we care about you, but that's really just a covering that we're greedy. That's, by the way, that's the charge of the false apostles in Second Corinthians. They were saying, you know, the very reason Paul didn't take money from you is that he really wanted money from you. That's what the false apostles were asserting when you read Second Corinthians. Yes. Oh, Adams Road? And we might say that even Jesus kind of set a precedent when he sent out the 12 during his earthly ministry. Remember, this is part of the, during the earthly ministry, this is not part of the church. But he sends them out and he says, he says, freely... I'm not going to even quote it right. Um, freely you've received, freely give. That's what he tells them. And uh, But he does at the same time, he does say, but, you know, if they receive you and they take you in, you know, uh, don't take a money bag with you. They These people can take care of you. So there's a little bit of a difference in the way that they proclaimed, but also kind of what they expected. Um, I don't think we have to, I'm not, we're not going to go over this in the Bible study tonight, but I think most of us understand that Paul elsewhere makes it really clear that those that benefit spiritually 
actually help out materially with those that provide the spiritual benefit. And he does that. So there is a, so Paul recognized that there is a, a reciprocal care in that regard uh, for people that are doing this. In fact, Paul did take support, didn't he? In fact, he took support from the Philippian church while he's at Thessalonica. He actually takes support from the Philippian church where he had come. And he says that. In fact, he says, you guys sent to me to my need twice while he was after he left there. Just right almost immediately after leaving, uh, they sent uh, care to help Paul. So Paul did receive care. Paul doesn't deny anybody else the right of receiving care. But Paul said he was so concerned for these new believers that he never wanted them to ever think that this was about money. And I do think that that, again, it's still an important thing. I have a birthday card that was given by her older, one of her older sisters, given it many years ago. And it's like a 1950s picture of a mom and a dad and two kids all dressed in their Sunday best walking away from the church. And the little girl says in there, I, or the son says, I love coming to church. And the dad and, or, and the daughter says, I love it, especially when they pass the offering plate. That's why I got this pretty new dress, you know, and the whole, and, you know, I know her sister was taking jabs at me, poking. So it's, she finds funny cards, but you're, but that, isn't that what people think? I mean, people think the church is primarily about people asking for money, primarily about pastors asking for money. And uh, so I, I do think it's, to me, it's very uh, important for us to recognize that that is the thing you have to be careful for. Uh, be very careful of going down that path. And Paul set this example uh, in the way that they proclaim. The word proclaim in verse 9 is not the word evangelize. We have other places like in 1 Corinthians 15 where he's talking about evangelizing people at the very first, them hearing the gospel about Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. And there we have the verb form of the word evangelize and the noun form of evangelize. So we so one of our professors used to just to make the point used to say we good news the good news or we evangeled evangelize the evangel. Just trying to help people see it's the same word noun and a verb in the passage. This is different. This has the word good news for the gospel of God, but when it has proclaimed, he has the word keruso, and keruso is a term. To announce something as one that had been charged or sent by somebody else to pronounce this, and you don't mess around with it. You don't tweak it. You don't say, oh, you told me this, but I kind of figured out a way to make the, to tweak the message a little bit. You were, you were sent as a herald to herald this message, and it's not for you to decide, oh, I don't think this crowd is up for the message the way you sent it, so I've made some alterations to it. Everybody gets that. And so, and I think that that's very important when we understand that Paul's talking to Christians, and even when it comes to teaching Christian life truth in terms of the gospel of God, it's not our place to try to tweak that message. It's ours to proclaim that message as he gave it to us. And Paul said that's the way we did it without being a burden to you. Verse 10, for you are our witnesses, and God also is our witness. How? And we have... Uh, three terms that he uses to describe how they proclaimed, how they were when they proclaimed this message. First of all, we were, some of your Bibles might have holy. How many of you have holy for the first word? Or holy, okay. We'll talk about that in a minute. 
And then after that, lost my place, and righteously and blamelessly we were with those of you that were believing. First, that first word that's translated holy, uh, the normal term for holy is the word hagios. Hagios. H-A-G-I-O-S. Okay. We've been over that word before. This is not hagios. This is the verb hasios. It's actually an adverb in this case. But hasios. Not hagios. Hasios. Starts with a different first letter, not an A sound, but an O sound at the beginning. And the, the, this word means that which is appropriately fitted for what it's supposed to be. So in other words, Paul says, when we came to you, there was a proper way for us to approach this, to take it seriously and to conduct ourselves, to act a certain way around you. Um, Again, it kind of goes back, I think, to the idea of the Russo, how the proclamation at the end of verse 9, that, that there is something about Asias. And it, I'll, I'll be very honest, I've, I've gone to some, and I'm going to pick on this as an example, but I've gone to certain youth groups and youth rally things. Even when I was growing up, I watched this happen once that I can remember. But I've seen some of these where it's like the youth guys are like, oh, I'm trying to reach 15-year-olds, 17-year-olds. And, you know, they're not going to sit for just the just proclaiming the word as it is. got to be really cool about it. So i got to use some really cool language, and i got to really, and, and they got to do all this other stuff. And they, they kind of, and it's not that God says, oh, you have to talk in King James English or any of that kind of nonsense. We're not talking about that. But sometimes it's like we try to hope, we go back and we try to reinterpret this message and then try to just make our behavior all look really different. In ex a case in point, a Christian that might say, I want to relate to the young people today, and I think I can relate to them better if I get myself all padded up. I've actually been listening to pastors that are thinking, I can relate to the younger crowd if I get a bunch of tattoos all over me. You ever heard anybody? I'm, now, if, if a person has tattoos, I mean, that's their business. Not in our church, I haven't. <laughs> well, no, because I'm scared of needles, so there's no way I'm doing that. <laughs> but, but, no, but they are doing that to think that's going to help them reach these, this group of kids. See, look at me. I'm just like you. I've got the same kind of things you have. And I wear the same kind of clothes you wear. Reminds me of in the 70s. I saw that a lot with these pastors or, or evangelists or whoever they were that would try to look like like bikers or, or I don't know, uh, rough guys so that they could reach these guys. Yeah. And I mean, if that's what they are, I mean, if you, if God saves you and you're a biker, God doesn't say, well, you got to change your clothing or anything like that. Because is there a wardrobe? Anybody ever seen a wardrobe requirement in you for ministry? I know, I know, I know. <laughs> but I, I uh, uh, my Bible uh, translates that devoutly. Yeah, mine yeah and mine does too. But it's not the word devout. It's a word that means that you are fitted appropriately for the task that God's given you. you and what does devoutly mean? Normally, devout means that you, um, 
devout oftentimes translates one of the words for godly, and it has to do with the fact that you are very um, circumspect. <coughs> you're, you're crossing all your T's and dotting all your I's. You're making sure everything is exactly like it should be. Okay. So that sort of sounds like rightly and blamelessly. If, if, we, if we went with that direction, maybe, yes. But this doesn't. This is just talking about fitted for it, appropriately fitted for it. And so it would have the idea that you've got a person that actually has taken the care of saying, hmm, what is the message God wants me to proclaim to these people? And what is appropriate conduct? What is appropriate way to, to, to do this? I, I, I'll, I'll, let me give it. Let me. So how, but these words are not the cause to be. They're not the what? The cause to be. cause to be. Yes, the cause to not. Um, just a second. I've got to look back at this because I think it is. Um, I'm just wondering because. No, God I, is our witness. How devoutly, righteously, and blamelessly with you that we're believing we were caused to be. Oh, it is. It oh, is. So it is. So that makes it pretty clear that it's the supernatural way of life that's um, showing out towards these other believers. Right. And so let's go back and think about that as a supernatural way of, way of life. Is it just that Paul goes shows up at Thessalonica and God just takes him like a puppet and just goes around, you're going to say this to this person, and this is that what he's doing? No. So Paul actually is making a choice to walk and to think in the way that God wants him to walk and to think as he's dealing with these people, right? But that's going to have to do with, I can't do this without God, number one. Number two, God says who I am in Christ. I focus on that. I focus on God by his grace. And then God is able to cause these things to be this way. And that's why I'm using these other examples that, see, we go back and we try to think. We do something that I don't think Paul did. I don't think Paul sat up all night trying to figure out, how can I tell people the Christian life or preach this gospel of God better? How can I tweak this message? I don't think he did that. Paul knew what the message was. He just, he's mostly concerned about his demeanor. He's mostly, mostly concerned about how he comes across as he's talking to these people rather than trying to be something he's not, to try to impress them. And that's for uns that's with regard to unsaved people <coughs> he's talking about. It. He says, I do that that I might gain some. So yes. And uh, and all that meant was, if you put that in, got to keep that in the context of 1 Corinthians 10, that Paul said, 1 Corinthians 9, that Paul said, when I'm around somebody that kept law, guess what? Well, I kept law with them. I, I ate kosher. And when I was around people that didn't keep law, well, then I didn't worry about fussing about keeping law and all the different rules. So in other words, Paul says, uh, if they had an issue, I, I didn't make an issue about In other words, uh, for those of you that, that didn't know Dan Dalkey, Dan Dalkey trained Josh on how much coffee to drink in a day. <laughs> No, I'm serious. If you knew Dan, Dan drank a lot of coffee. I don't know how many pots of coffee Dan might go through in a day. Yeah, sometimes three pots of coffee in a day. Dan drank a lot of coffee. But Dan had a friend that that was part of a group that didn't believe in drinking coffee. We all know who we're talking about, right? The Mormons. And Dan said, 
I'm willing to not make coffee and not sit at the table. That's an amazing thing for Dan, to not sit at the table with a hot cup of coffee there. If around those around them to be able to share the gospel. He didn't want a cup of coffee to get in the way of sharing the, sharing the gospel with them, which I really had to appreciate because I remember when I first came around here and, you know, this, this what did I know about Mormons? I knew a few doctrinal things and I knew that they normally didn't drink coffee at that time. And I was, I think some of them actually drinking coffee these days. I think that's, they've kind of taken that one off the table. Um, but I, I, there was part of my flesh that wanted to go, well, I'm going to drink coffee. They're not going to stop me. But when Dan made that comment, I was really encouraged to think, yeah, that you don't want things to get in the way. So that's kind of what Paul's talking about when I become all things to all men. And in this context here, when he's talking about being carefully fitted for the job, I again, I don't think Paul's trying to tweak his message to reach people. Again, so I, I, I hope I'm not illustrating this to death, but... How many of you grew up around pastors that when they preached messages, they had that? You started the message with a joke. I had a pastor, I think almost every single Sunday, started his message with a joke. And you know what? To this day, because this, this topic comes up when my family gets together and we talk about him, we can still remember some of the jokes he taught, but we can't remember the Bible he taught. But we remember the jokes. And then... You always end the message with a story. Hopefully one that makes everybody cry. And if the pastor has to pull a tissue out of his pocket and tap his eyes at the end of the story, it's even better. And so, but this is the way these guys were trained, right? They, these guys went to Bible colleges and seminaries. They're taught this is the way you put a message together, a sermon. You start off with a funny introduction to catch everybody's attention. And then you go through the message and then you have to have some heartwarming story that draws everybody in at the end. Now, you know what? If you're teaching and there's a story that God maybe allows you to come to mind, or in my case, my mind just goes, and my wife goes, you didn't need to tell that story, uh, which is probably the case sometimes. Um, then that's okay. But to actually think that that's the way you have to, you have to do those things, or otherwise people aren't going to listen to the Bible. I appreciate the fact that in our church, the people that do teaching most of the time, I don't think we do that. It's not that Josh or I or Jim never tell a joke, but I don't think we do it primarily to think, oh, they will never understand this without a humorous bit here. And so all of that to say, if you're trying to understand what Paul's getting at, Paul's trying to remind these people about how he conducted and that he wasn't trying to get anything from them so that when he conducted himself among them, he did it fitting to the task that God gave him to do, not taking liberties with it. Secondly, with that then, secondly, after that word um, devoutly, as some of your Bibles have, or that which is carefully fitted to the God-given task, the second word then is in righteously. Righteously means we did it right. We didn't skirt the truth. We didn't fudge the details a little bit. We, we, we taught it exactly as it is. We behaved ourselves in such a way, we were caused to behave ourselves in such a way that what you saw was what you got. We weren't putting on a fake persona. We were righteous. We really were exactly what God wanted us to be in that moment in terms of our righteous behavior. And then the last word, blamelessly, meaning 
you couldn't come to us and go, well, yeah, but you said that, and yeah, but you did that, and yeah, but you did that, and yeah, you did that. Now, were there things in Paul's life that he probably could have been blamed for? Yeah, we've been over Paul before. He was like us. He was a sinner that God had saved, was in Christ, was free of condemnation, and sometimes his flesh got in his way, and he pursued things that he wanted, the way he wanted to do, things he thought were important. But most of the time, as we look at this, and I think that this is an encouragement for us, that it is possible for a believer to be doing these things and to be blameless in that activity. That a person can't come back. Why did you teach that to me? Why were you, were you teaching that to me? To try to get something from me? No. I just taught it to you because you needed to know who God is and you needed to know what God is doing right now for you as a believer. That you are in him. And this is what he's counting true of you. And so he says, again, in this regard, for you are witnesses in God, then how fit, fittingly, righteously, and blamelessly we were caused to become to you, those who were believing. And again, it's, I, 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 if, I hope I don't sound like a broken record, but these passive verbs that he uses in chapters 1 and 2 of 1 Thessalonians, the importance of those is to remind the Thessalonians, this was God's work. This was God's work. You have a choice on whether you're going to think the way God thinks so that God can accomplish that work through you, but in the end, God's the one that does it. John 3.21 But he <laughs> You know, I'm not going to remember. I'm not going to quite quote that verse all the time. But he that is in the light come, or he that is doing doing the truth there it is. He that is doing the truth comes to the light that it might be plainly seen that his works are worked by God. John 3.21 Very important verse because what you know what that verse reminds us of? If you do anything, if anything is ever produced in your life that is actually worth anything of value, it's because God accomplished it. Now, you, it's because you're practicing the truth. And the truth is you're recognizing, I can't do it. It's just, it's impossible for me to do that on my own. But God can do it through me. And God has put me in Christ. He has freed me from my sin nature so that I can actually do a work. But in reality, God's doing that work through me. I, I really, really appreciate John uh, 3.21. Now we go back then. I wanted to say one just quick comment. Um, just how he's talking about uh, witness and being in folly. And um, it really came to my attention of how much our actions and what we actually do means so much more than just our words. Like people, the people are there in Bali, like we would say things over and over and over, like with the kids. And I mean, it was just out, out one or in and out just so fast. But right when they saw it happen, they were like, like when they saw Noah obey the first time, like it was just like, whoa, like they, that, that's what opened up their eyes. And it just showed like, yeah, it's what we do like we can preach all we want but when we see it and we see that fruit then it's like okay yeah that is so much more like when john and john it talks about how 
on the Baptist came as bearing witness, and just how he kind of talks about that witness and how important that is to the witness of that. You might say in the verse of you are Jesus is the word and right. not word only. Right. all in all aspects of life like when we're at home when it's like oh you just feel like oh just sit back relax but the tribes when people really see it like your kids you know when they really see like oh yeah they have a different character around here now we had conversation on the phone back before you guys returned to the States. And that was part of the conversation mm -hmm. was, because I still, I, I think about that every once in a while, that you and Josh very likely are like the first genuine, caring, loving marriage relationship they've probably ever witnessed. Because mm -hmm. the only kind of marriage they those they know is a marriage that's driven by love from the flesh. And you've talked about, you know, the way they function. And that doesn't mean they don't have a they don't that doesn't mean they don't have a loving affection for one another, but there's a difference. I don't know if they do. <laughs> yeah. And and then and then as parents with kids, think about that. They they look at kids differently than as Christians we can. And uh it kind of seems like there's a tie between verses nine and ten. Because yeah. his example was that he was working day and night, not putting a burden on right. any of them. And that showed that he was upright and blameless and had a purpose. That's right. By doing, by working day and night and not putting any burden on them. That's right. That's, that, is what, that is exactly what's going on. That's why we went back there and had to bring, bring back down to those verses so that you could see this connection in here. Okay, now we go to verse 11. Even as you know, <clears throat> excuse me, even as you, uh, each one of you know how we were as a father with his own children. So again, now he's looking at, at the, the normal loving or caring uh, attitude that a father had towards his children. Again, that verse is telling you, just like the one where it talked about a mother with her with a nursing mother with her children back up in verse 7. So here in verse 11, where he's talking about a father with his children, he's talking about what he was doing with believers. This is, I, I know I hammer this home a lot in, on this, but there are so many people that every time they read the word gospel, they think about telling unsaved people about what Jesus Christ did. And yet a lot of times in, in our New Testaments, gospel is referring to good news for people who already are Christians. And it isn't just reviewing 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4 again. It's about telling Christians who God is. And we've made that point before. And so Paul says, we were like a father with you. Do you charge your children for their food? Again, just following in the context here. Is that what you do? The children saddle up to the table? So nickel each. We do have mom tags. That means I get to take a bite yeah. of their food. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was a father tag. Uh, <laughs> they're giving father tags as well. <laughs> Especially if they're 
especially when it comes to ice cream. <laughs> but again, when your kids are growing up, it's real interesting. So I've had people ask me this this statement. See if you can answer this. We have a passage in the New Testament that says says um, that the parents care for the children. This kind of in this passage is one of them. And it says that the parents lay up for the children. But we also have a passage that says that the children are responsible for caring for the parents. And I've had people that are like, well, which is it? Well, they're both true. If you are able to lay up for your children, then you do that. But you know what? Not everybody has parents that can lay up for them. And some kids, their parents, they're going to reach an age that they can no longer work. And guess who's responsible for caring for them then? The children. So it kind of depends on the context, doesn't it? And it's different for every family because there's, well, not every, but there's different kinds of families, families that maybe the children have the ability and the parents don't and some vice versa. But in this context here, obviously the, the big question is, is that a father does not then charge his children to live in the house. He doesn't charge him rent. I do know a Christian family that charged their kids to live in the house. I thought that was the most bizarre thing I'd ever heard. Like they were growing yeah. up? Yes. Yes. I knew a family that did that in the town I grew up in. They were not believers, and everybody in town knew about it. And to talk about a family that had probably about the worst reputation in town for doing that, everybody just thought that was a horrendous thing to do. Now, I have known, I'll just say this, I have known parents that have told me that they charged rent to their adult children because they said if we didn't, they were never going to move out. <laughs> Which I'm like, well, if that's your goal is to get them to move out, maybe I could see why you would do that. But I, that was never my goal is to get them out of the house. But uh, so, but norm, but again, normally under normal circumstances, unless you're like this, normally parents don't charge their children uh, room and board. Uh, interesting enough, we do have to say we have a mix of cultures here, don't we? Because we do have a culture that expects kids when they get to be a certain age, they expect those kids to have a job, not so that those kids can go buy video games for themselves and junk food, but so that those kids can contribute to the family uh, care. In fact, uh, Dwight was telling me when he was teaching that there were twin brothers that were going through school and they were just super, super smart. But the parents required those boys when they hit 16 to go to work. No more school. And Dwight and some other teachers apparently went and appealed to them saying, your boys have a lot of potential. And you ought to let them do some school. So the compromise they let them do was one boy would go to school one day and one would work. And then he would come home and share that with his brother. And his brother would go to school the next day. And that's the way they finished school, which that's an amazing thing of, them, of, them, of itself. Anyway, oh, I'm sorry, I'm digressing from the main point, but that we do have to remember we have cultures. And if you come from a culture where, you know, you require your kids at some point when they're able-bodied to contribute to the, the, the ability for you to survive, well, then that's the way it is. But that's not, I don't think, normal. kind of comes under the thing of different households have different rules. There you go. There you go. If, they, if they decide, then that's what they decide. Yes. What's the difference here between exhorting and encouraging? Okay, we, you're getting ahead of me because we're going to hit verse 12 now. Okay, here we go. Well, so now let's jump into verse 12. That's in verse 11? It's oh. before the father part of mine. 
for. Well, I'm really surprised. When you read it the first time, you had it switched. Were you reading out of a different Bible? Oh, I'm re- I was reading from the New American Standard. Yeah, see, and yeah, verse 12. 11 and 12 are switched versions. Uh, oh, just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging, yeah. imploring each of you as, as children. Um, no, I would say he's in the first part. In the Greek, he's again, he's still talking largely about the fact they didn't want to be chargeable to them. And so then as they conducted themselves among them, we were like a father with his children. But then he's going to go on, and what does a father with his children do? He doesn't just not charge them, but now he's going to extend what a father does. See, so your translations have had to make a judgment call about what they think the father with his children, what that connects with. And I think it's dropped in the middle here because it connects with what went before and what follows after. It doesn't connect with just one of these. So now we come to this next phrase, which you guys have in verse 11, which says, uh, exhorting and encouraging. We'll talk about these two. I think all, most all of us understand uh, what the word exhort means. It means to call in alongside, to encourage a person to do something. It's a, it's a, it's a call to action. Uh, it does the, the gift of exhortation ever teach? Well, sometimes it has to. But more than anything, the gift of exhortation would be would come along and say, you know, you learned this thing. You remember? You remember we were that we were in a Bible study a year or so ago, and you remember we went through this thing, and this is what you learned there. This is a good time for you to put that into practice. You, you learned about the armor of God. This is a satanic attack. You remember that was in theory. Now it's time for you to actually put on the armor and stand. Oh, you're dealing with the world system. The world system is baiting you and luring you. Do you do you, do you not do you remember what we learned about the world system and how it's drawing you into it? You got to be involved in all this stuff that the world system says you have to be involved in. You need to stop loving that. Remember, you you know that from the Bible. That's a gift of exhortation. It's encouraging a person to to. And 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 I remember I think Oren was the one that shared this years ago. But encouragement, the very nature of the term, normally does not mean go on and do better than me. I'm failing, but finish the race. I'm not going to. I'm a mess. No, the very nature of the term parkour was to call him in alongside, like come on and join us. Come on. It's it's a it's an appeal in that sense. The second term now. So I I think all of us. Most all of us know verse tw- uh, the first word there, that encouragement. But the second one, or exhortation, I guess you have, the second word that's translated encouraging is a term that actually has to do with soothing, soothing somebody that's going through something hard. And I think we'll take a look at a couple of the examples of this um, over in John chapter 11. So I have the word comforted. Uh, comfort. Comfort is actually a, is maybe a better way to translate it. Sometimes comfort has been used for the word parakaleo, right? Because in the King James, what was what was what was the Holy Spirit called by the Jesus? Comforter. He was called the Comforter, but it's also the Exhorter or the Helper, depending on what translation you're looking at. But in John 11, the reason we're coming over to John 11 is in John 11 we have the death of Zach, uh, Zacharias. The death of, death of Lazarus. And uh, if you look in verse 19, John 11 and verse 19, it says, And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary that they might 
console them about their brother. Now, this is not, this is not the, come on, get on board type of, of work. This isn't parakalao, this is paramuthao. Muthao uh, had the idea of like to, to smear salve on something that hurt or was raw. And so this is talking about the action of doing something to console or soothe somebody. They've gone through a loss. We don't get that, right? What it's like to try to share and help a person. The, verse, the word is repeated in verse 31. Therefore, the Jews, the ones that were with her uh, in the house and were consoling her or soothing her, having seen Mary, that she rose up quickly, they went out and followed her. But again, they're, they're soothing her. So this is a good illustration of why a person might need soothing. A person might need soothing because of a loss. In this case, two sisters and the loss of their brother. But it's not the only reason a person might need to be soothed. Um, turn back to 1 Thessalonians, and this time we're going to go to 1 Thessalonians 5. <coughs> Excuse me. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And uh, I'm just going to, he gives a list of different activities that they're supposed to be doing in here. But verse 14, but we encourage you, brothers, so we're calling you to action here, to admonish those that are disorderly. In other words, you see a brother in the church that's being lazy and not doing the things that he's supposed to do as a Christian? You admonish that brother. You encourage him to think properly about his activity. And then he so, then he goes on. And soothe or console the the little soul, the little souled ones. So in that regard, admonish the unruly. It seems not like exhortation because it's more like no, no, isn't it? Uh, it is. It is that way. But remember, okay, let's go to exhortation would be more like okay. But just, just, but just wait. I want to make sure we get the right word here, though. In verse 14, it says, we encourage you, brothers. So they're encouraging you, brothers, to do what? You admonish the unruly. And you console, there's our word we're looking for. So we, the idle. Oh, yeah, can, okay, so admonish the idle. And then the second word is to console the little sold ones. That's that second term that we have over there in verse 11 or 12. That's those people, remember, that for lack of a maybe a better way to put it, it's like they can't contain their emotions. They're just that person that is highly emotional and doesn't take hardly anything for their emotions just to kind of burst up and, and overflow. And maybe it's a person that's highly emotional in the sense that they tear up. It's a person that's highly emotional in the sense that they kind of, they, they just kind of get, well, is it possible to get to, to be, emotional in the sense that you're just that person that gets giddy and just crazy and ah, like this almost the point that you don't think rationally that way too yeah those are both it's just small soul doesn't just mean that you cry a lot it also might mean that you're the type of person that you're just overly giddy with things in fact probably both of those are true in this case but it's the word to soothe those people in other words you don't come along and tell those people hey Quit being so emotional. Rain it in a little bit. Wipe those tears off. Come on, buck up, Buster. That's not the way you. He says you come in and you, you soothe. In the same way that if you had a person that had 
a raw patch, you know, they fell down, you know, it's, <laughs> it's the difference between mom and dad, the girls fall, run down the sidewalk, fall, they skin their knees, and, you know, with dad, they're like, oh, oh, it's like, you're okay, it's okay, the minute they see mom, Wah! mom's yeah. like, oh, baby, oh, <laughs> you know, let's go put some cold on your knee, you know, stuff like that, <laughs> they, she was trying to, of course, the girls, I think, were milking that a little bit, <laughs> that, that happened more than once growing up. But you, but, but you get the idea that you know I'm kind of I was always kind of like oh you're okay you're fine you know it's not, it's not gonna your leg's not gonna I swear Stanton would do this thing when he was a baby where he 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 go like this see if Mama was around if Mama was around he'd close his eyes and keep sleeping but if she was around he'd open eyes and start bawling. <laughs> get help. <laughs> But I was. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> you say that with your parents in the room. <laughs> but I use that illustration of the girls falling because their mom really sued that. She would take and she would put some ointment on the knee. She'd she'd wipe it up, put cold washcloth on it, hold it on there for a while. Then she'd put ointment on the knee for them, and they'd do all this stuff. And that's that that ointment. That's that soothing. To try to make it feel better. The washcloth, all that was to make it feel better. And that's what, and that's what Paul says you do for these people. Except you're doing it emotionally for them. You're soothing. And I don't think you be. I don't think you're belittling the person or coddling them. I think you can be helpful to a person going through this without having to just go. And just baby them that way, like my wife did with little kids. It's not exactly the same, but I think you get the idea. But that's a good example. Another one I want you to look at uh, is in Philippians chapter 1, or 2, Philippians chapter 2. Do you relate it to that myth word at all here with the comfort word? Tim? To, to the term mythos? Yeah. Isn't that in the word? Yeah, but yeah, I don't know that it's. I don't know that it has a background in that, but maybe it does. And I have. Look at that kind of like you tell stories with the comfort people sometimes. Not a lie. Oh. But you tell them a comforting story that you know. You know, once sometimes this happens and blah 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 blah. You know. Yeah. And uh, it's comforting. Hmm. We do it in training at the store all the time. You say this situation is what can happen. You know, you're not saying this exact situation happened. You're saying this is a similar, this is this is the circumstances where this becomes pertinent. You know, I'm gonna have to make a note and go back and look at that because that actually might be an interesting addition to understanding this word better. In Philippians chapter two, and I'm just, I'm not gonna go back and teach all this stuff in Philippians, but back in chapter 1 in verse 27 Paul talks about standing in one spirit and contending or competing as a team together in one soul and if you remember that you can know in your spirit the way things are but your soul may not feel that way right okay and so it's so sometimes in the body of Christ even though you know we're all one and you know you should you should you know how you should treat everybody sometimes your soul gets bent out of shape and it's hard for you to get along and that's obviously the problem going on in, in Philippi because he mentioned soul quite a few times in this letter that somebody, I think their feelings got hurt while serving together. And now they don't want to serve together anymore. And it's 
cascading over into other people in the church. And so Paul says in verse 1 of chapter 2, if there is any encouragement in Christ. Is there encouragement in Christ? Yeah. If you remember who you are in Christ, that encourages your soul. It calls your your soul, your spirit, excuse me, calls it, it challenges your spirit to think a certain way about other people. But then it goes, and if there is any consolation, our word, this word soothing, from love. Love's going to do, well, love's going to do what mom does when she takes the child and holds him on their lap and says, it's going to be okay. Or like Josh is saying, you share something with them, a story about uh, a, a tough thing that they went through and you, you share that to, to, to try to help them. And I think it's interesting that he's looking at that. See, your soul can't relate to who you are in Christ. It's not experiential, and your soul is relating to what you can what you can deal with in terms of experience. And since your soul can't relate to that at the present time, it's only your spirit then. So this soul and spirit issue that started back in chapter in chapter one, standing in one spirit, serving together, competing together in one soul, he's going back and forth in these opening verses with something that relates to spirit, something that relates to soul, something that relates to spirit, something that relates to soul. And these opening two statements here, encouragement in Christ, that you have to relate to with the Spirit. But is there a consolation from love? Stop and think about love and what is love? what can love do to soothe a person? And I think that's a very important, very, very important thing for us to understand in the way we are in the body of Christ. That, that there is, a, I think, a mistake that we can make when, sometimes when you're teaching heavy is that you think everything that you do with other believers is always solved by quoting a verse. And it's not always that way with every last thing. Sometimes there is just you taking the time to be kind and soothing with a person that is maybe been rubbed a little bit the wrong way. It, it is going to have to go back to some truth because you're going to have to encourage them with truth in Christ. But there's also going to be a soothing from love. And so if we go back to 1 Thessalonians. When Josh said that about the story, it reminded I had uh, someone tell me that they were scared about global warming. My first reaction was to say, I knew that, but because I cared very much about this person, instead I said, you know what, I know how you feel. When I was your age, they said North America would be frozen by the time 2000, and it scared me too, but I know now that God's in control. So it's that, you know, being able to, instead of, how stupid can you be? Believe that. (laughs) You know, it's, which I might have done with another person. (laughs) But because I cared about that Mm -hmm. person, it made me want to soften it. Mm -hmm. I don't, you know. So back in 2.12, and we'll kind of, we're going to, we'll tie off what we're looking at tonight. I I wanted to finish off 
the last half of verse 12 because it's all together, but I don't think we can do justice to the last part of this. But Paul in there, remember, he's talking about remembering how we worked really hard night and day. And we did this so that we did not did not burden you as we proclaim the gospel of God because we reacted this way because we were treating you like a father with his children. And one of the other things that a father does with his children is he both exhorts his children, right? Isn't that, that's a big part of parenting, right? Encouraging your kids on how they ought to behave, encouraging them on their activity. But there's also the other side of parenting, dealing with them when they're going through emotional roller coasters. Or whatever and the thing that might be a big deal to them you ever have this is apparent that things that your kids maybe had trouble with that you almost want to snicker at <laughs> really but you don't want to do that you don't want to let the kids you don't want the kids to think that you don't take this seriously because you care about them and so there's an appropriate place to be soothing with them when they're going through these these difficult things and paul says we, he did both of these as a father working so as not to charge his kids for what he was doing, but doing the parenting work of encouraging and soothing them. And goes on, just filling the end of this, and testifying that you walk worthy of the God. What? Oh, witnessing, testifying? Oh, you have charge? Okay. We're in verse 12. Well, we haven't got to that part yet. Okay. Well, I don't see anything that says witness. Charge you to walk. Yes. Okay. In four. In four, yes. I don't know that I have ever had so much trouble with translation differences as I'm running into here in chapter two. Oh. Oh. Imploring back in verse 11. It's in verse 11. It says, exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father with his children. It's because they took those whole things and put it up there. Okay, I, 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 but yeah. that word imploring in the New American Standard is a word, and then is and what? imploring is what? Charge. That's it. It's actually it's a word in the Greek. It's witness. Uh, it's it's witnessing or testifying for you. So I think that he, there's a it, we'll 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 talk about this more next week. But be reading through these verses and and maybe it'll come to come together. But testifying for you to walk or imploring for you to walk. Worthy of the God that is calling you into his own kingdom and glory. And we'll come back and talk about the significance of the kingdom and glory. Uh, that's in, the idea of that worthy. Think about that this week a little bit. Because there's because there, cause this has an interesting parallel. This is a very, very interesting parallel to another passage. And I think what you find when you read this is this is Paul writing to believers that are brand new, whereas the other passage is a group of people that they've known it a long time. And so it's just kind of the way he expresses it. But you're getting two sides of the same truth. And we'll come back to that next week. Pardon me? It's almost exactly Ephesians 4.1. It is. Yeah. That, that yeah, that's exactly what he says. And it says, walk worthy of the calling. Here he says, you're walking worthy of the God or the one calling you. Okay. So we'll come back and we will pick that up next week because I don't know how long we've already gone. Yeah, there's an hour. <laughs>